Hello, Radio Cachimbona listeners. I am so excited to be bringing you the fourth episode of season four of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist and critical race theory podcast that follows my journey, Yvette Borja, as a movement lawyer in Southern Arizona. This podcast is an audio archive of all the fierce resistance happening in the Southern Arizona borderlands. It will provide you with all the timely analysis you need to keep up with leftist law and politics. This episode is very, very special, especially for the OG listeners who have been with me since the Cerebrona's days, because Cynthia Mesqua is back on the podcast. I invited Cynthia Mesqua, Sofia Gurule, and Stacey Villalobos, all badass Latinas, so that we could get together and talk about our experiences as Latinas in the workplace and why unions can make your workplace a whole lot better. And we also get into the things unions can't fix. I really hope you all enjoy this episode. If you want to support the podcast, please become a Patreon. You will get first access and exclusive access to lit reviews and early access to episodes like these. The Patreon allows for me to do this work, which ultimately ends up being like a full-time job with audio editing, producing, hosting, and the Patreon really helps me actually keep this a reality. Another way to support is to leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and to follow at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Hope you all enjoy this interview. Hello, Cachimbonas. Today, I am very excited to have an incredibly esteemed panel of Latinas to discuss our experiences in the workplace as lawyers and also to talk about the importance of unionizing. So to start, I'll introduce our guests. Sofia Elena Gurule is a Chicana public defender with a border and prison industrial complex abolitionist agenda. She's part of the Association of Legal Aid Attorneys, UAW Local 2325, and lives, organizes, and works in New York City. And Stacy Villalobos is the daughter of Mexican immigrants and the first in her family to graduate high school. She currently works at a unionized nonprofit where she focuses on issues of racial economic justice and workers' rights. She is a steward in her union, IFPTE, and she is currently in Southern California. And we have the return of Cynthia Mesqua. Well, Cynthia Mezcoa Zamudio, co-founder and co-host of Cerebronas, daughter of Mexican immigrants, abolitionist attorney with experience in public defense and crimmigration, currently surviving the apocalypse with her family in Los Angeles. Thank you all so much for being here. I'm just so honored that you all are on the podcast today. Yeah, likewise. I'm so excited. Thanks for having us. Yes, I'm so ready for this conversation. I'm so excited to be here. This is really nice. And I'm excited to meet Sophia and Stacy and just hear what y'all have to say. <laughs> Yay. Okay. So I wanted to start off talking about the basics. What are the difficulties of being a Latina in the workplace? Sophia, do you want to start? Sure. I mean, there's a number of difficulties and it obviously like impacts people in different ways, depending on their experiences and their identities. But for me, 
in particular, I feel like one of the major difficulties I encounter is that people think any of my opinions are like fiery or I'm like angry all the time or I'm like too passionate and I can't think or act rationally. Something that I'm pretty regularly confronted with. And I've noticed Mm -hmm. that when other people basically repeat the same thing I do, even if they're also heated about what they're saying, it will be met differently if they say it versus if, if I say it, but I mean, there's a number of different experiences. I mean, I want to point out that like, I'm a, I'm a white Chicana, so I'm not experiencing a lot of the same types of like systemic cultural oppression that Mm -hmm. black Latinas in my office are experiencing. But I mean, that is like a baseline. Like basically if you have an opinion Mm -hmm. and you state it with force, which is kind of what we're taught to do (laughs) as litigators and in law school, um, it can be met with a different type of energy if you're a Latina. Yeah. Yeah, that really resonates with me. I've felt that since law school of people describing my argument style as aggressive, which is very funny because I'm a soft-spoken person. Um, But yeah, I, that really resonates with me. Cynthia, what about you? Yeah, I think I hear Sophia in that I also found that I was having to challenge, like the challenge of navigating all these stereotypes at all times. And so it does play a role in deciding when I'm going to speak up or what I'm going to say if I speak up. And so all of that I also resonates with me. I think also just other predictable patterns of having to work twice as hard for the job than white coworkers. You know, we mm-hmm. are regularly, predictably given tr- translation work, plus right. additional responsibilities that are kind of given to us and yet not accounted for as our labor, right? Mm-hmm. So then our, our job descriptions get really long. And again, it just reinforces that we're having to do twice the amount of work for the same amount of pay. Uh, so I think that is just a common, common experience that I, again, it's like, it's predictable at this point. I think another challenge is, at least for me, where I've had, I mean, I'm sure I'm hearing from y'all that these difficult work experiences are pretty common. So I came into these later workplaces with the experience of my earlier ones, right, which were also uh, traumatic and toxic. And so this now you're carrying into this new workplace everything you learned and are trying to unlearn from your prior workplace Mm -hmm. so and it it silences you in a different way right I carried awareness that knowing that if individuals in my office did not like me especially if they were in a supervisor position or senior attorneys that can impact my career and so that results in sometimes giving people passes for stuff they do or they say because of this fear that you carry from what's happened in the past. So I think that's just like another aspect of navigating this, this whole dynamic. Yeah. Um, Diana, thank you for saying that. I think it's really difficult to navigate power dynamics in the workplace, especially like I think some nonprofits are particularly hierarchical and there is also a strange amount of territoriality about the work, which I find so repulsive and can't understand, but there is a certain degree of territoriality. And as you say, there's politics that you need to navigate in order to succeed. And, you know, it is worrying that the longer you stay in it, it, you just get worn down, whether you want to be worn down or not. Ooh, okay. Stacy, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I would echo everything that Sophia and Cynthia said. I think like when I was first thinking about this, I was definitely thinking about 
workplace culture and having to navigate a space, right, that was not designed for me, not designed for people like me, the white supremacy that's built into that workplace culture, right, that it's a very waspy culture where, you know, upper middle class white folks basically are like, kind of like set the expectations around how we're supposed to act and not act, um, and just navigating the different you know, the tokenism, the microaggressions, the overt racism and sexism and other isms, you know, the number of times I've been confused for the other Latina in the office or, you know, misidentified as the interpreter. Or I remember when I was first coming into um, the legal world and I was hit on by a partner at a law firm when I was, you know, fresh out of undergrad and they were supposed to be oh, mentoring no. me and instead they hit on me. <laughs> you know, like, it's just like, wow. yes really disgusting um, yeah that's so bad and then that's not even getting into the ways right in which white supremacy is built into the law itself right and how you know the, the idea even mm. that there is law in an objective mm -hmm. sense instead of that law is power the fact that we have to create these like individual solutions to really structural issues the fact that we you know have to rely on decisions that were made by rich white able-bodied males in the judiciary and pretending that those experiences and that their interests mm -hmm. have nothing to do with their decisions and instead it's based on this objective logic right all of those things right I think contribute to the difficulty right. of being a Latina in the workplace and having this really different relationship with the law and with my clients than some of my peers do or the judiciary does yeah Exactly. Yeah, I hear that so much. And something I've been commenting on recently is how the people of color who are either directly impacted, who have family members who are directly impacted, or who just are in community with people who are directly impacted, are the ones who burn out the most and the earliest. <clears throat> and it's a lot of people who are in managerial positions, especially in the immigration world, are these white people who are able to detach themselves from the clients they don't see their grandmother's face when they're talking to somebody who's detained and i do think that have being able to have that kind of emotional separation really it it benefits them in this very dark way and it's not talked about either oh i mean just the hierarchical point like that's it is wild to me how much that dominates the MPIC or the nonprofit world. Like, I, I mean, I guess I feel kind of naive for not of understanding that better when I went in, but I mean, it becomes where like, if you have an opinion and you're asserting it strongly and you're backing it up with argument, with fact, with whatever, when you oppose someone who's higher than you in that hierarchy, it all of a sudden it becomes like about a personal beef like you're beefing with someone or that you have a problem with someone and then it becomes all about you and you're like actually I'm just like trying to fight for my community and my clients but okay go off I guess it's all of a sudden like some personal drama but in reality it's like people were saying it's this waspy culture this fear of confrontation this fear of just having honest real discussions and debates with one another and just you're supposed to basically seed your ground because of this structure. And it's like, that's, I don't know why you're here, but that's not why I'm here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes, oh my gosh. I feel this way so much. Like I've been genuinely confused sometimes because I see people, especially in leadership positions who really move with their ego. And I, 
it, it makes it difficult to have conversations that require self-reflection because it there's not a culture of that there's a culture of like go 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 and us versus them and never once thinking that we could be the perpetrators of harm as well like the people within the nonprofit can also be perpetrators of harm and it's and I think it's nonprofits that are trying to have this this progressive face I think a lot of times leadership especially disregards the importance of introspection and it's like well of course of course we don't have a racism issue here we we fight we have a racial justice program and while actually like based on this survey the people of color that work here don't feel like they're evenly evaluated as compared to their white counterparts so thank you all so much for sharing there's we could really i know that we could really go off for so much time i wanted to ask what differences have y'all experienced between unionized and non-unionized workplaces? Cynthia, you, you brought this up, how your prior work experience to law school has colored your experiences as a lawyer because they've kind of bled into each other. And there's, I don't want to speak for you, but there's like a sense of being so aware of the power dynamics in a place that it, it can be at times debilitating or like disheartening I think at the very least do you want to speak to those differences yeah yeah so at prior to law school I was technically unionized because I was part of government civil service but because I was in an executive office it was kind of made clear that we we just kind of had to do the work and as in a bubble and kind of disregard anything else. Like what differences have you seen between like workplaces that are unionized and workplaces that are not? And like, I mean, not to be a downer, but we can't talk about the problems with unions because there are problems with unions. Like I actually wouldn't want to be an attorney for a union because you would, you end up like defending racist or sexist practices within the union. But um, yeah, just, I guess like, um, you can also talk about how the experiences were similar if that's been your experience, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I, I guess that's kind of, that is, I didn't feel the union protections. I didn't feel like I was a part of a union when I right. was in it. Again, I think that was, I think if I were in a different part of the Department of Justice, that would have been different. But because I was in the executive office, they just kind of made it like, you should just be grateful you have this job and <laughs> disregard anything else, any complaints, you know, you can leave them at the door. And I think that that same attitude was present in, in my last job where it's instead though, because it was now I had clients, it was seen more of like, if you have any issues with the way we're running the office, if you have issues with, if you have complaints about your workload or anything, then you must not care about your clients. Like then your, your heart's not really in it. So, oh, wow. so I didn't, yeah. so again, it was just kind of like this isolation that was taking place in, in both in both spaces. And I mean, you mentioned being aware of power dynamics and it's, yeah, I was, I'm so aware of them because I saw them move quickly and kind of effusively, right. Where it's hard to pinpoint exactly where it's happening, but it's so clearly happening where I saw a Latina uh, who was doing amazing work, be pushed out, you know, and be treated really terribly. And it was kind of made clear, you know, are you on her side or are you on our side? And, you know, 
And so that experience, yeah, made me very aware that depending on who likes you, it can impact what your options are for when you leave. It can impact your experience while you're there. And yeah, but it, again, it was just like, there's no space to discuss this. And we can go back to talking about the stereotypes that we're navigating all the time, because you start bringing up these different issues within the office. You start asking people to be self-aware. You start asking people to account for labor. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, why are you so against mm. the team? Wow. I mean, I'm so sorry that they were manipulating you like that because just Oh, that, and I also feel like this is a very common manipulation tactic because I felt similar things said to me when I was doing deportation defense. And it's like the most, for me, it was like one of the most heart-wrenching things that I could be accused of. And it leads to very unhealthy work practices and like very unhealthy mental health situations. So I just send solidarity to you for dealing with that. Right, right. I don't know, Sophia or Stacey, if either of you want to speak on the differences you all have seen at unionized versus non-unionized workplaces you've worked yeah, at. Yeah, and I just, I want to like respond to what Cynthia was saying too, and that guilt trip that happens. And I think one of the key parts that I've seen that is different, well, first of all, that pisses me off so much. But second of all, one of the things that I've seen that's different is that that the work actually changes and that we actually, like the union and the power that the workers have means that we force the organization to actually live up to its values. And, you know, it's, they say they're progressive, they say they're doing this for the clients. Um, but that oftentimes, like, it's actually not for the clients, it's for the people who they have accountability to. And that's funders, right? That's part of the, the NPIC that Sophia was talking about earlier, right? Um, and when you have... Wait, Stacey, can you define that actually? Because I forgot to define it the first time that Sophia dropped it, the nonprofit industrial complex. Do you just want to give a little definition really quick? Yeah, and I'm sure that there's like better definitions out there. But I think of it as sort of the relationships that nonprofits have with elite people with money, foundations, funders, the government, um, that sort of create the trans create like the excess capital that people have. So excess money that people have into, um, funding for the nonprofits and that, that the, and then along with that funding come different conditions, right? Setting priorities, mm -hmm. get, getting to choose what the deliverables, deliverables are, getting to choose what the outcomes are that are important mm -hmm. to the funders rather than to the actual communities that we're working with. Thank you. That's really great. Um, and sorry, I cut, I yeah, cut you no off. Problem. Um, so I actually think like when nonprofit management puts up this, it's you versus the clients, right? And you're, you're taking something away from the clients that's a real sort of scarcity mindset that's made up, right? Mm. It's, it's not actually us versus the workers, nonprofit workers versus the clients. It's us and our clients versus all of these things, yes. right? Versus white supremacy, capitalism, imperialism, like all these things. And that that setting up that dichotomy, dichotomy in that way is exactly manipulation. Um, and I think the big difference, right, is that when you're working in a unionized workplace, you actually have the power to force management to do things that they wouldn't do otherwise. Um, so when, you know, nonprofit workers who have decided to, you know, devote their lives to this, having, and especially in the law, right, having these other alternatives that are much more lucrative, like you're much closer to the communities, um, although there are issues with that too, right, there should be direct accountability to the communities you're actually working with, not just through the staff. 
Um, but the union is one way to create that accountability to the workers who are much closer than management is um, to the communities that we're working with. And then there are like, um, and besides that sort of like change in decision-making and accountability and transparency that comes, I think there's also like concrete changes for the workers themselves, like better pay, right? Like my organization this year, we negotiated an organizational minimum wage so that everyone has a living wage, not just the attorneys, oh, right? But good. even our paralegal staff, our administrative staff, um, so that again, right? So that my organization lives our values. We're a workers' rights organization. We advocate for an increase in the minimum wage at the national and state level, right? But we're not doing that in in our, in our house, right? We're get we advocated for an increase in our bilingual pay, right? To the point Cynthia made earlier about how we do we do all this extra work, right? Without any recognition of that. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> and it's still way too low. Let me be clear about that. But at least we're getting something, right? For all this extra work that we're doing. And then there's also this like consistency um, and equity in pay that didn't exist before the union. Um, so it's not just like people who management likes who get the better pay or the privileges. And that for me is really personally impacting because it means that I like don't have to code switch basically, right? To get the same treatment right. that some of my peers get. It's actually just built in to the contract. Thank you. Yeah, it's really, I never know if I feel hardened or disheartened by hearing about other Latinas experiences because it just seems like we're all going through this and it's like, where is safe? Where is safe? <laughs> Sophia, what about you? What differences have you seen in the places you've worked at that have been unionized versus not unionized? Yeah, I mean, first to Cynthia's experience, which I have definitely seen in my experience of management being like, oh, it's about our clients. Well, what about our clients? And constantly emphasizing our clients, but forgetting that the people who are actually working with their clients are their staff and their workers. So we actually have a better understanding in many different ways about <laughs> our clients and their experiences, because we're literally the laborers of the organization, like they are not. So I always find it pretty rich when they say that. And also when they talk about it, like we're not from the communities of which our clients are coming from, like that we don't have a solidarity with our clients, like inherent to our, to our existence or our being or why we're even doing this work. So I'm always like, whenever I hear that phrase, and I hear it a lot, it's just which is very rich, it just kind of sets me off in a different way. <laughs> but in terms of like the differences between being unionized, not being unionized, I've been at the organization that I'm at where we weren't unionized and then we, where we have been unionized. So I've seen that difference. And it's, you know, it's basically everything that Stacey was pointing out, just the actual worker power to force management to live up to their public principles and their public missions and the things that they do say to their funders and the things that they say in the media and in all these different avenues like it's the workers who've come together to we're still negotiating our contracts I'm like I like get too into it but like it is us who are forcing them to say things like I don't know if we say and nice attention what does that mean for us as an organization and like how do we pursue that and what are right. the different avenues that we can mm. do that and having the Whoa. workers kind of collectively say like, this is what we want as the laborers of this organization. And we have a lot of reasons and rationale rooted in our experiences, whether it's our lived experiences or our experiences through the job. Like 
you can do really powerful things. And what to the point like earlier on about the hierarchy, something that's interesting too, is that when you move up the hierarchy, you get more and more isolated. And when you're making those arguments or pushing for bigger systemic change, whether it's within the institution or in public facing issues, when you get isolated, your ability to fight for those things can be really compromised. So when you're rooted within the union, and staff yeah. and you're connecting with people and actually doing that outreach and actually having those conversations collectively, that's really where the power has come from. Because I've definitely advocated within my organization pre-union and the big power that came from wasn't just me, it was staff from all different practice areas. I mean, we're not, we don't just do immigration, we do family defense and criminal defense and housing and have people from different you know, roles, whether it's an attorney or a legal advocate or administrators. And it's when all of us come together to speak up, it has had huge, like just huge impacts in ways that it's, it's kind of like laughable to me that I didn't think of those things even earlier, but we're a baby union. We're learning. Oh, well, I love that y'all are negotiating that. And I would love to see similar changes like you know because so many of these non specifically the end ice detention because i saw it became very trendy in 2020 for the nonprofits to like publicly say that they wanted to end ice detention and i'm like well what does that really mean like subsequently that we made that statement like we need to alter certain things in our work if we're really going to say that and do that um and yeah and unions yeah. help facilitate that conversation and that confrontation right. in a way that can actually be really productive and not right. so hostile because there's like a built-in mechanism for like you to do yeah exactly to like actually have those conversations and I've it, for me the union has only been an improvement I agree that unions aren't inherently good just like attorneys aren't inherently good and courts right. are definitely not <laughs> inherently good but it's about the people who are making up the union just like it is for anything else and like what are the shared principles and what are the goals and objectives of like what everyone is trying right. to accomplish so I'm sorry to bring this basic ask question to y'all but you know this is a question I have confronted recently I have been confronted with recently and I didn't even know what to say, except like, that's a very elitist stance to take, <laughs> which is not going to convince somebody of my point. So what would you say to a lawyer who doesn't understand the utility or import of joining a union, who maybe sees themselves as a quote, professional and not quote, a worker? I'll go because I, you know, I was having these conversations at my non-unionized workplace because I... Yeah, I think unions would have made a big difference. But to this attorney out there or whoever thinks this, they really need to face the facts about our legal field. The legal field is a miserable field. Yeah, like it's a miserable field. Face the facts. When you look at the, you know, different indicators of mental health, when you look at different indicators of like quality of life, right? It's not great. It's it's really not great. They're, they're pretty high statistics. So maybe our, maybe, and I say this sarcastically, maybe our quality of life could be significantly improved by things like unions. And so I think the other thing that's happening, right, and it's in there, the thinking of self as professional and not as a worker is, especially for those of us who are working in public interest, we need to recognize our workplaces as places of capitalism. Even though we're in the public interest work, there's still a place where capitalism is operating. And 
there's so many ways that I that I line up my experience in my last job and all the ways that it was difficult, like, right, just setting aside all the ways in in which it was wonderful, but all the ways it was difficult, it just kind of replicates all the issues and the critiques that I have about capitalism, right? The way that it is isolating, the way that it has no care for your own mental wellness, that there is no space for that, that, you know, these kinds of harmful mantras that mantras is a terrible word, but that's like, how I almost think of people just repeating these sentiments and feeding into them of if you can't keep up, if you can't handle this, then there's something wrong with you and or you're not strong enough to do the work. And just again, like that mentality, it just makes me think of like capitalism. Like it's just this idea that you have to be able to tolerate anything and everything. Uh, So yeah, I think like once we can stop kidding ourselves about the areas of our work as anything, right? Because it's try to, they try to sell it to us as, oh, this is your family. These are your really close friends. These are your peers. But no, those people are coworkers, right? This is my supervisor. Yeah, they really, I feel like they push that so hard. No, they really do. And I'm like, I'm good. Oh my God. Always with the family. Yes. Always with the family. I'm like, I have a family. I'm good. I'm I'm really good. I have enough family. They bring their own problems to me. I have one mom. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You like, right. Come on now. Like you're cutting my, you're cutting my checks so that I can exist and pay for my bills. They don't pay me enough. Yeah, it's like, no, this isn't my family. In fact, you know, I'd like some time away from you so that I can see my family. Right. Yeah. And I think like, I appreciate your point about how ultimately we are still living under a capitalist system. And I am reading um, Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber. And actually he talks about, he focuses on corporate lawyers, but I think like a lot of what he says could be applied to nonprofit lawyers. It's, you know, maybe not the traditional exploitation of capitalism, you know, in that sense, but exactly. I think there is a way in which we are alienated from our labor. I, I think it's like, especially- exactly if you work on large teams and don't have your own caseload, I just feel that it's, it's possible to compartmentalize the work so much and also to take decision-making power away from you as the person who is, you know, let's say directly researching or writing on an issue. And I think, I think that that is a kind of alienation. Maybe it's not alienation in the traditional sense of like, you don't see how your your positioning in the manufacturing chain ultimately leads to this commodity but I do I mean I I do feel like belittled frequently and like I don't have autonomy even though a lot of people come to this work um like uh, to they you know they do think of themselves as professionals or like autonomous professionals and um I think that's kind of a it's a myth or at least that's what I, that's what I've experienced so far um so yeah I, I really appreciate I really appreciate all y'all's thoughts yeah I 100% agree with that and I'm actually reading a book right now by Sarah Jaffe which to your alienation point it's called work won't love you back how devotion to our jobs 
keeps us exploited, exhausted, and alone. And I think that alone wow. part, right, is what you're really honing in on. And I think as I was reading this book, um, you know, it talks a lot about, it starts talking about like the domestic worker profession and how like love is inherently part of that profession, right? Like you're showing love for folks. Right. It really resonated with me because my mom's a domestic worker. And I was thinking about both the paid labor she does, caregiving, um, and also the unpaid labor, right? And how that love is used to justify her exploitation. And I was like, wait, it's the same thing with me, right? <laughs> like, right? My love for my clients um, is used to justify my exploitation. My law degree doesn't make me special. Mm. That doesn't protect me from capitalism any more than my mom is protected from capitalism or my clients who are janitors and restaurant workers and construction workers are protected. From it, right? And I think that, you know, I think a lot of times in the nonprofit sphere in particular, we talk about burnout, but I prefer to call it exploitation actually, because I think more than like yes. burnout, right? More than like me being right. tired or me not being able to handle it, to Cynthia's point earlier, it's that it's set up so that we burn out, right? And particularly if you're from the communities that you're working with. It is exploitation. Yeah, I'm like, name that. I'm going to start doing that. Snaps to all that. Because <laughs> that that's exactly what it is. <laughs> to right. The question of like people who see themselves as a professional and a, not a worker, that's so interesting to me. Right. Well, and I say that because like one of the, like one of the things that was brought up, how can we be in a union with non-lawyers because we have certain ethical obligations as professionals? And what if a conflict comes up that makes us like, potentially violate our ethical obligations I don't even know what that means I'm not gonna lie <laughs> no I was like I yes. invite you to think of a specific example because you're not gonna be able to think of one you're literally just saying things so that like that makes us step back and think wait but like really when you think about it there's nothing because even even if they're like let's say for the like paralegals who are working under a lawyer supervision like you are still ethically obligated to make sure that nobody is engaging in the unauthorized practice of law or like otherwise breaking ethical rules so it's like literally like what are you talking about right <laughs> or like ethics don't apply in other or that ethics don't apply in other work environments like that doesn't really make sense right it's so offensive right doctors. I know it really does sound like just exactly doctors it really does sound like just weird lawyer devil advocacy like hypothetical situations that you're like you're actually saying nothing which is so much of the legal field it, it just sounded like that person did not want to be in a union with somebody this other field right and they're just they're covering that they're masking that with this hypothetical example it's not doing a great job Right. Right. And I can understand people maybe not wanting to be in a union because so much of the workplace is so white and it could like reproduce like white supremacy within the workplace. But it's also like that white supremacy already exists in the workplace. So how do you right. combat that? And how do you do that within the union and within management? Like what is what is the plan to to deal with that and to create policies that actually promote our lives and our happiness and not being miserable and not being exploited, aka burned out. <laughs> what is the solution just to keep going on as is? Like, no, thank you. Right. Well, that's what I don't understand about people. Like another argument that I've heard is, oh, this manager is so toxic that it wouldn't even matter if we bargained a contract, like the workplace would still be toxic, which 
which I guess speaks uh, could potentially be speaking to your exp experience, Cynthia. I don't know if you want to speak to that, but I still think a unionized workplace is generally better than a non-unionized workplace. It doesn't solve every workplace cultural issue, but I do think even just the process of unionizing itself is a transformative process. Like I know that in during my talks about unionizing with folks at various places I've worked at, I've never felt more empowered than during those talks. And I think that itself is an important part of gaining power back, you know, regardless of the specifics of the contract. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't disagree with any of that. My experience, I think the union could have been a more protective force, but it's just, it, it, I think also what contributed to it was that it was my first full-time job and so there was a lot that I was learning oh, yeah. and there was a lot that I was trying to navigate and there was a lot there was a lot of respectability politics that were being pushed onto me Woo. yeah and so I think where it, if I had been maybe a little bit more bold I would have asserted my union rights maybe would have gotten in touch with my union but at the time I was I had just so believed that if I acted out of line, you know, I would have no professional career afterwards. Mm -hmm. Well, I think a lot of people feel that way. And I, I appreciate you speaking to that experience and how, you, you know, I think that's really important context that you gave us. So thank you for that. Also, what would you, I think, I think we might've already answered this, but what would you all say to people who don't understand why nonprofits are also workplaces that should be unionized? Because, you know, it's like, oh, Stacy, you work at a workers' rights nonprofit. Everybody there is dedicated to workers' rights. Shouldn't you be all good? Do you really need a union? <laughs> what would you say to that? Uh, yes, definitely. And I think yeah. with this question, some I think we have sort of answered it in various different ways. But I think one place that we haven't gone is the history of nonprofits. And I think it's really important yes. to start there with this question, right? That like, not only do we have the issues with like, the nonprofit industrial complex undermining movement work and sort of demands for actual like structural change because of the band-aid solutions because of the funding structure but we also have that nonprofit work replaced government work right which is a traditionally unionized workforce mm. um, and so we mm -hmm. saw like the privatization of public services um, which is a large part of what led to like our nonprofit world being created right where the wealthy people um, can decide how we spend what should be our tax money, right? <laughs> and so like, when we have that structure, um, the way to counterbalance that, right? The way to counterbalance all those incentives to privatize our public services, the way to, to counterbalance the power of the wealthy in our nonprofit world is that's to unionize, right? And to actually build that accountability, like we were talking about from a, a community that's at least closer to the communities that we serve and work with um, than the funders or management or some other entity out there. Um, and I think to the other like really important piece of nonprofit unionization for me is that, you know, I think to, to the point about people from these communities um, burning out or being, you know, dropping out of nonprofit work because of the exploitation they face, um, I think mm -hmm. that if we create these changes in our nonprofit world that actually like create better job security and create more stability for workers, the primary one of which is like having that um, autonomy and power over your work and so the ability to participate in shaping your work and then also better pay, right? <laughs> then we're going to see that 
folks can stay longer, right? If we change mm-hmm. those structural conditions of what being a nonprofit worker is, then people will actually stay. And so that we won't have a situation like we have right now, right? Where like 80 to 90% of people who lead nonprofits are white, right? That's not an accident <laughs> like that's built into the system so that people mm-hmm. who like me, who don't have intergenerational mm-hmm. wealth, who don't have all these other, who don't have the safety net, that some of my peers in the nonprofit world do have, can, mm-hmm. they can stay, they can make decisions that I can't make. Um, and then they're also not contending with all these issues, right, that I'm contending with in my work. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. I, I really love everything that Stacy said. We just, one thing that I, folks who are in the public, public interest field, and I say public interest field because I'm specifically talking more about from the government yeah. services perspective in public defense and, and other work like that is, you know, we can't do justice work in a war, in a way that undermines justice. And that's what's happening at, in so many levels, right? And so nonprofits, but also these government, these different government legal services, they operate on the assumption, right? And on almost on the model, it's basically the model mm-hmm. that you can exploit your employees, ask more and more of them with no regard for their mental health. And then when they leave in whatever mental health they leave, it doesn't matter as to you as the employer, right after they leave there will be a like a fresh young heavily indebted law graduate Mm -hmm. student like or law graduate to take their place right so you as an employer you don't really care the what what mental state your employees have while they're there or when at the point where they can no longer stay and they need to leave right and so that is how we're going about this. This is how we're staffing. And the places where there is disruption of that model, meaning people are staying, I think to Stacey's point, there is intergenerational wealth filling in there, right? So like, for example, one example that I talked about in my workplace of how, you know, class issues were showing up in our workplace was if we are all working so much that we don't have the time to get groceries, right? So if if you have intergenerational wealth and are being subsidized subsidized by your parents and your family, you can just order out, right? Or if you don't have as much debt or whatever, you can just order food. If you are not, then you have to somehow make up the time, find the time to get those groceries. If you don't have the ways to have wealth subsidized, the lifestyle of having to work 24-7. So yeah, I think it's just that's what's going on in these workplaces. And it's, yeah, it's exactly why there's 80 to 90% white-led nonprofits. Thank you for that. Sophia, do you want to add? I mean, I just fully co-signed when Cynthia and Stacy both said. And like, when I think of the MPIC too, and I think about its relationship to capitalism and the history that Stacy was talking about and the privatization of what were previously public government-funded services, I also just think about how it further entrenches the work as well, like particularly with something like universal representation, which is something that people should have if they're facing deportation. No one should be doing that alone without an attorney, though we know that's happening basically all over the United States with some limited exceptions. But then it becomes this like weird relationship where people don't want to end ICE contracts or closed jails or do these things that would actually be the thing that they claim to be about. <laughs> and instead they prioritize their own institutional existence. And it's something that we mm-hmm. all know is happening and happens throughout the country in so many different nonprofit spaces. And it's something that I feel like 
a union helps counteract. And maybe not all attorneys care about, or people who are going into legal services don't necessarily care about these larger systemic problems, but Cynthia's point about the work and justice and like, what does that actually mean even within our institutions? That to me is another component of it. Like, are we working to end these conditions? Or are we here to just keep sustaining them? And I didn't come up, like I learned this from reading other really powerful people, like reading The Revolution Will Not Be Funded Beyond the MPIC by Insight. And like, those are the things that helped me kind of even understand myself and who I am as a worker and, and what I'm even doing within the institution that I'm operating in. And I feel like joining a union helps transform people's relationships with one another so that they actually do start viewing themselves as a worker and as a laborer. And even though it's a professional space and kind of changing our dynamics with just even the state around us. So for me, joining a union is, it's collectivism, it's anti-capitalism, it's, it's all of the things that we know unions are supposed to be about. Though obviously it can be more complicated than that, but I don't know why anyone would not want to join a union beyond those immediate fears of like the union itself perpetuating white supremacy, but it's like you have to operate, you have to work collectively with people who aren't like that to, to eradicate that or to fight back against it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree that unionizing does transform relationships. And I mean, I actually am attracted to the the wall to wall model of unionizing because I want non-lawyers in the union. I agree that not every lawyer who's doing direct legal services or who's doing impact lit, you know, which is allegedly supposed to be about change. I don't think that people come to the work thinking about undoing their job or, you know, I mean, there's people who are perfectly content to have a career, you know, to be, to pay your rent and be fed and then also have all this social yeah. capital from this work is something that many, many people in the nonprofit industrial complex are, are very comfortable, yeah. you know, perpetuating. And I, but I think that even though it won't be perfect, I agree that this reach towards collectivism is really important because I do think when you get consensus, when you make consensus-based decisions, you make the best decisions. And I I agree because I, that I don't really see why somebody would not want to join a union unless they want to preserve the status quo. Now, I think there are people who are like, well, I don't really mind if there's a hierarchy because I see myself climbing within the hierarchy. And if I just stay quiet and don't disrupt any relationships, then one day I can be the toxic manager or the toxic legal director. And that's very unfortunate, very cowardly way of living, but that is happening. <laughs> just laughing at you being, that's very unfortunate. It is. It is. <laughs> It is. I mean, come on. Why even bother being in this, you know, space allegedly about social justice if that's what you're going to be about? For real. Why not go, why not go and try and climb Google's ranks? You know what I mean? I mean, I agree with you, but there's also the savior complex, which I think sometimes brings folks to this work, which is really problematic and unfortunate to use your word. <laughs> I 100% agree with that. Yes, especially white people who come to this work come with the savior complex. Okay, so this is, oh my gosh, this is a, such a difficult conversation for me. I'm going to have a nice glass of rosé after this, thinking about this. 
but must talk about it. Um, many times having Black, Indigenous, people of color in leadership positions still doesn't adequately address issues of equity in the workplace. Or, I mean, there's people who can even hamper progress. And, you know, I think there's, at prestige nonprofits in particular, I've heard about cultures of of meanness that get perpetuated and that particularly affect women of color, but it's often tied women of color themselves perpetuating it. And the only way it's been explained to me is by saying hurt people, hurt people. But to me, I while I understand that, I also want to think about a way of moving forward. And so just wanted to get y'all's thoughts on that. I know very controversial, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's like one way to respond. Hurt people hurt people when you're talking about like workplace and you're talking about like hierarchical power dynamics. And that's a very confusing thing yeah. to say in that context for me. But I mean, yeah, I mean, people are entering these workplaces with more, with so many different types of intersecting identities that impact the power dynamics and and how people even operate right. and within those spaces so for me it's not just about like what is your identity or like what's your background or like where do you come from and it's to me like what are your what is your politic why are you here what are you doing what are you about are we about the same stuff how do we work to build the future and the present that that we want and that we think is needed for our communities and for this world, basically. So, I mean, that's definitely a real thing that mm -hmm. BIPOC and leadership positions aren't necessarily always sharing the same politic because, I mean, we're all- Their class backgrounds different. Exactly, <laughs> like class background, gender, sexuality, like so many different things are informing someone mm -hmm. and who they are and how they're being within that space. And for me, I've learned to kind of take a step back from kind of relying on any of those different types of identifiers and trying to be like, what are, what are, what's motivating you and me? And what are we really trying to accomplish in this space together, if anything? Um, right, but I think it's right. important I, to be clear-eyed and honest um, with ourselves and with each other about, about how that plays out, because we all know it's a real, it's all, we all know it's a real thing. I mean, Mayorkas is secretary of DHS. You know what I mean? Like right. that's, that's just how right. it is sometimes. Not to compare yeah. people in our institutions to Mayorkas, but you, you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, I mean, <laughs> um, on this point, I think like it's important that we realize that we're not one thing or another. And kind of to Sophia's point, right? Like we're all both perpetrators of harm and will be on the receiving end of harm and so that like hurt people hurt people that's 100% true but that doesn't make like hurting others okay just because you were harmed right and we need to have accountability processes built in um, to our culture and to our organizations um, around like remedying that harm um, and, and yeah so I would I would say that first I guess and then I think the other thing that um that comes up with Black, Indigenous, Latinx, AAPI leaders is that like, I think that that's oftentimes like the problem at, at stopping with just DEI, which 
that phrase diversity, equity, and inclusion work um, is it can it can oftentimes fall into just relying on tokenism, right? Um, and I like obviously like someone's someone's identities and someone's sort of positionality influences their leadership, but it can be to Sophia's point, right? It might not influence their politic. Um, and it can be different for different folks based on their, you know, based on the different combination of identities that they have um, and sort of the, the like relative salience, I guess, of those identities in different contexts. And I'd say that too, there are like institutional forces at work, even for the most well-intentioned leader of color, some that we've talked about today, right? Um, the issues around trying to sustain the organization being the primary job of an executive director, right? That itself is like, that's a bad incentive, right? That's a bad, if, if you're trying to sustain the work, that means you're not going to be try to abolish ICE because then your job goes away, your organization goes away. And so I think that that's why we need these kind of structural reforms to our workplaces in addition to, you know, sort of diversifying um, and that I think the best answer we have right now to do that is unions. And obviously they're not a, you know, they're not a panacea. Like we've talked about, they can reproduce the very structures and inequities that we've, if you're not intentional about making sure that the union doesn't do that, right? And that it actually is like a consensus-based organization that doesn't reproduce these hierarchies. Um, but I do think that like the, the diversity framework is never going to get us 100% there because even using that framework right raises the question of like what are you diverse from um and it reinforces that there is a norm and that the norm is not um the directly impacted folks the people of color black people indigenous people yeah i i just love everything everyone said already and this this is something i also even struggle to talk about because i do see with space and with trying to put on the lens of compassion, I can see how the Latinx, Latina mentors that I had and the ways that they were harmful to me, you know, how they were kind of replicating what I imagine were harms mm -hmm. they went through and, and how they've also like internalized, right, these different ways that they were told would get, get them success all this, right. uh, this respect respectability politics which was enforced on them and then they become the enforcer of it and and teach right they so many of the things I I remember was I felt like my Latina mentor was trying to teach me respectability politics teach me how to keep myself safe uh teach me how to you know allow certain uh certain toxic behaviors in order to receive certain benefits, right? Like getting to be on additional cool projects, getting uh, better letters of recommendation. Like she, you know, it was pretty, the connections were made clear to me. Like if I allowed this, if I participated, if I smiled, then my career would go further. And it's hard to see, you know, these mentors then succeeding. And, uh, but I, I think, and I think that's why they do it because it has brought them success and it is still bringing them success. So when I think about how to undo this and how I, I think of it mostly from a, a, a point of view of like, how can I just not contribute to this? And it's, I've felt so, so relieved when I've had uh, mentors of color that weren't enforcing respectability politics, weren't policing me, 
and that always was is such a, a breath of fresh air and just trying to replicate that. So I would say it's important to hold on to our values and our memories. The longer we're in these workplaces, the longer our sense of what's normal is like readjusted based on who's around us. And also what folks have said mm-hmm. about it, holding ourselves accountable and finding ways to build in accountability around us. And I, and I think there's also such simple things that we can do when I had interns in my last job, you know, I tried to do for them and, uh, things and tried to provide them ease about the things that I know had stressed me out before. So, you know, I made it clear that they weren't expected to answer my calls. You know, if I'm calling, it's because I, I hope I can reach you, but I don't expect you to be tied to your phone. I don't expect you to answer like on the first ring, which are expectations that I've had placed on me, right? Like if you're not answering your phone, then uh, during work hours, then you're clearly not working, uh, things like that. Right. So easing that for my interns, knowing like I'm trying you, but you can call me back whenever I don't worry. Um, you know, offering folks to be their reference before they even ask when you know you're in that, uh, that role for them, right. Or, you know, proactively asking them, like, who can I connect you to instead of being, instead of waiting for them to ask me like, oh, you know, I want to talk to someone here, like making that ask like of them, like, who, who would be helpful? Let me see who's in my network and then I'll connect you. Just trying to take the, the stressful little aspects out. But even that, of course, like it's not perfect. Just by having interns already, we, can, we haven't talked about, but we've touched about, we've touched on all the unpaid labor that there is and internships are definitely a part of that too. So it's not perfect, but I'm definitely trying to be mindful about what kind of mentor am I going to be. Right. That's such a good point about how diversity and the way that it's framed is always it cements whiteness as the norm and I think it's so important especially with what we're talking about before with the law like the reasonable person standard really is like whatever the white cis male judge thinks a reasonable person would do so yeah right that's like a very absurd question to be asked how are you diverse <laughs> like what does it even mean yeah I mean grammar's racist but also like are you kidding me <laughs> like do you know what the word diverse means like it's so right. true I mean it's why I tend to I'll, I'll be a mentor but not a, a like an intern supervisor or have an intern because I'm so worried about that <laughs> I'm so worried like would I have the emotional capacity when I'm already feeling like so worn out to also do that. And when I explain that to supervisors, to people say to me like, oh, you should have an intern. I'm like, and I explain that like, if I were to do that, it would mean like a really meaningful connection and level of like care and investment. They kind of look at me like, what? Like, I don't, like, what do you mean? And I'm like, this isn't just about like supervising the work. It's also about like helping doing everything right. that Cynthia talked about. I mean, that's that's exactly what I try to do when I'm mentoring and, but also doing that while also supervising work. It's like so true that it's like Latinas and other women and women of color who are who are kind of carrying that emotional labor that pe- other people don't even understand what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same, same here. I, it's so nice to talk to y'all and just be in this space and feel like oh yeah there's a community out there in which I belong to even though it doesn't feel like I see it through my work experiences I I don't know the only thought I I keep having is just I just don't feel like we just have to completely reimagine labor and our workplaces and then change it because 
the way it is right now, like there's just too much harm coming from it. Like it, there always has been and these workplaces, it's just, it's our, our, our every human life is important. And the way that these organizations think they can just continue to exploit and continue to perpetrate and continue to replicate and still have, you know, social clout at the end of the day is, you know, some <laughs> that can't, it just can't go, it can't go on. It simply can't, uh, but who knows? Uh, I'm not in the workforce right now, and I'm. I don't know how I can drag myself back into it. It's funny, totally, and it's funny that like they want you to be accessible by phone all the time, particularly in like detained rep work, and then they want you to work around the clock, and you're just like, holy shit, you really do not want. Uh, you need you need to control every aspect of my life, apparently. Mm. and surveil and you're like holy shit yes yep yeah and like the unfortunate thing I think is that so much of that emotional labor is done by women of color in the office space you know like the bonding and like you know things that kind of keep the office together and keep it bearable is so often placed on women of color like that was you that was doing that for the interns and not anybody else and I know I've talked about like the the people who are in managerial positions but then like the counter to that is like the person who's mentoring who's mentoring x amount of people and is unrecognized and underpaid for it because there are so few of us who actually care and right right even though it's so critical to you know, keep people sane in the workplace. And I, I think it kind of sucks because like, like, I don't know if you feel this way, Sophia, but I like don't ever want to be somebody's manager. Like I personally, if I stay in this lawyering game, which I don't want to, like I want to become a senior staff attorney and be able to develop litigation. And like, that's it. Like, I do not want to take on the responsibilities of a legal director or an executive director because the tasks that you have to do as those jobs are like, as they exist now is so unbearable. And also, and like, I just don't want to, I think like, like, uh, Stacey, you mentioned carceral logics in response to Cynthia's point about how she's been in workplaces where if you don't answer the phone, it's the people are like, what the fuck are you even working? And that's, that is surprisingly common even in like the nonprofit industrial complex even when you're talking about doing detained deportation defense or like you know doing doing defense within the the punishment system it these things get internalized yeah oh my god I, I'm forgetting the book title but there's literally a book that where like something very similar to what you just said is literally the title it's like how employers have come to control like I'll, I'll Yet, yes, yes. And it's kind of unprecedented, I think, especially with the whole working from home and the Zoom thing. Like, actually, I feel like I have more meetings now. And then it's like, there's this expectation that I'm on the camera, which was never a thing before. And it's important to point out another reason to get a union, people. Okay. All right. So that, those are all the questions I wanted to get through. Were there any closing thoughts that y'all wanted to end with? thanks for having us all here I really enjoyed learning from y'all and talking about this and like Cynthia said earlier it's a little my feelings are a little confused because I'm like oh I hate hearing other <laughs> Latinas like experiencing this but yet simultaneously like feeling <laughs> affirmed and not alone so it's complicated but I'm I'm glad to have 
to have been here mm-hmm. to have been included yeah, with I you. I totally agree. This was really like an amazing conversation. And I think mm, thank you for right that. to the point that came up earlier about the isolation that we can feel as Latinas. Um, I, I feel like that these types of conversations and like thinking about like sometimes the enormity of the injustices and like the fucked up shit that happens <laughs> and even these spaces that are ostensibly progressive can be just really like demoralizing and overwhelming and having like knowing that there are other folks like across the country um, in different spaces sort of mm-hmm. having these same conversations and like coming up with their solutions and being able to learn from you all just like makes me feel like you know when I think of what I can do personally, it's very overwhelming. But when I think of like what we can mm. do collectively, it just it gets less overwhelming. So I really appreciate you bringing us together that, to have this conversation. Right. Yeah. Well, actually, I was going to say, you know, I mean, I think we need to reimagine work, but also our relationship to it. And I, especially now, I think we're at a place, a lot of our jobs aren't necessary. And it's like, well, if a lot of our jobs aren't necessary, then shouldn't we have a universal basic income that is a living wage for people who, I mean, I just think about all of the beautiful art and books and podcasts, of course, that that would come out of such a thing, you know, if we didn't have people doing what David Graeber calls bullshit jobs, you know, which is these jobs are like stripped of their meaning. Yeah, that, that's that's my concluding thought. Um, thank you all so much. I love you all, admire you all. Well, Sophia, I'm telling you, I love you and admire you, even though this is our first time meeting. <laughs> the feeling is mutual. I'm turning off the camera <laughs> to say it. Okay, great. Um, yeah, thank you all so much. And I hope to have you all back on the podcast again in the future. Thanks, y'all. It was so nice to meet y'all.